Today is going to be a good one, you guys. Uh, we're going to end the year with a bang, our final episode of the year. It's been good to be back. I got to be honest. I was like, okay, do I have the time to like make this work? How am I going to put these together? And I just want to say like a huge shout out to Jacqueline, who is my assistant, and to Laura, uh, my video editor, because without them, I would not be able to have set aside the time to like finish these episodes up and get them up and running before the end of the year, because I have a lot of aspirations coming into the next season of, you know, which is 2022. Honestly, it's really a new season in my life. And that'll be the first episode of the year. We'll be talking more about that. Cause I, I know I've kind of dropped it uh, a couple episodes ago. Like, Oh, you know, there's some stuff that's happening. Let's just say, um, I'm taking a leap. I'm taking a big leap into just a new start. and uh, 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 just, just some really cool stuff. You guys, some stuff I'm really scared about and really excited about. And, the reason I think that fits with this this conversation today is that Richard Schreiber, who's an amazing composer um, who does work specifically uh, for um, trailer like film film trailers, and he's he's taken himself and he's built a business doing the thing that he knows how to do really well, and then he's used his knowledge to help others do the same, and he's created a new business doing that as well. And I believe that we are coming on to a time where we're just, we're not going to have colleges anymore. And I believe we touch on this in this, this episode, but we're not going to have that. We're going to have at least not for things like what we do. We're going to have university for doctors, lawyers, those types of things. But for creative individuals, I think we will be able to study under whomever we like It'll cost way less money and you'll learn way more about what matters because the truth is like if you're trying to be a creative, if you're trying to get a job from somebody as a creative or you're trying to sell your work as a creative, they don't care if you've gone to school. They just want to see the work that you've done and they want to know you know what you have to offer the world. And so that's why I, I love this, like doing this helping you hopefully, you know, take that next step into building an audience around the work that you create and being able to sell that for more money, right? And that's what I love about what Richard does too. And so I think you're really going to get a lot from Richard's story. And we're going to talk about some business things, some ideas, and uh, I don't want to, I don't want to hold us back anymore. Let's just jump into it. Here's my conversation with Richard Schreiber. There are two main stereotypes when it comes to creatives. The one who sells their soul and the respect of their art to make money, and the one who abandons the money to make their art. But I believe there should be a balance between the two where money is not the end result, but the money exists to serve the mission. That's why I'm here to help mission-driven artists grow the right audience, create income with your creativity, and change your mindset around common fears that creatives face so you can live your calling of being a creative individual. My name is Lennon Bone, and my mission is to help artists and creatives like you change the way you see your worth. Welcome to the Stop the Starving Artist podcast. Cool, Richard, I'm so glad that you're here. Um, I don't know when did we speak last. 
Oh, June, June, July, I think sometime. Okay, yeah, yeah. So I was I was trying to remember because the the world has been like just a big mush uh, as of as of late lately for me, and so um, this is really a treat because I got to be on uh, your podcast and yeah. which was really fun. And um, I was immediately like, I want to, I want to like reciprocate this conversation more because I just immediately like felt so akin to a lot of, even though we do different things, like just a lot of how you approach stuff. And so thanks for being here, man. I, I really appreciate it. Dude, it's an absolute pleasure. And especially now I can see your, your new digs in the background. That's very exciting. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm, I'm trying to, one of the reasons that I've been, so as people are like seeing, listening to this, you know, I've released this podcast and kind of started putting stuff up. And then I was like, why am I not doing video? Like that's such a big part of what I like to do. And so um, I'm revamping that too. And like adding that stuff in. So now people will see this as well, which is <sighs> exciting for me. Yeah. I should, I should have tidied. <laughs> well, no way, dude. <laughs> I, just like you said, like, screw it. You know, we're just, this is yeah. what it, this is real life. This is what it's really like. So absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you do primarily like you're, you're like the heart of who you are as, um, as a creative. And I want to be very specific about that because, I, I believe our, the heart of who we are is like very expansive. It's not just our creativity, but for you, you do trailer music, which I think is such a unique niche. Could you tell us more about that? What that, you know, cause we have a lot of different creative people. Like, what does that mean yep. <laughs> for some people? And how'd you get into that? Cause that seems like such a thing where, you know, like Hans Zimmer has to call you directly and be like, Hey, I think you're appropriate for this gig. <laughs> uh, right. Yeah. Okay. Trailer music is firstly, it's awesome. <laughs> it's just awesome. It's so, so much fun. It's so creative. Um, what that basically boils down to is I write music that goes on motion picture advertising. So whether that is for a big feature trailer for a blockbuster or whether that's for a TV spot, which is a trailer for TV or whether it's an online promo, I supply music for the clients who make those things. They're called trailer houses. Uh, and I've been doing it now for a long time. <laughs> uh, so I, yeah, I, I started full-time as a composer back in ooh, 2008, 2007. No, no, no. My math is terrible. I didn't so start. We're getting on 15 years though. We get, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's when I started as a composer. I went full-time when my daughter was born. So it was 2013. Okay. So it was a good, there was a good sort of six, seven years of sort of slugging away in the background to get here. Uh, I never knew trailer music was an actual thing, which, which is the thing I love about trailer music. Hardly anyone knows it's a thing. Everyone goes, wait, isn't it, isn't it the person who does the music for the film? Supplies that, you know, right. Very, very, very rarely that happens. It's, it's often, if you just imagine it's just advertising. So you're, you're producing music for a separate thing, which is the trailers. I never knew it was a thing. Um, I wanted to be Danny Elfman, you know, or at least, you know, yeah. walk in his giant footsteps of awesomeness. Uh, that was my goal to be a film composer. And 
somewhere along the way, as you know how it is with being a creative person, is you you have a goal and then you just you follow the trail of breadcrumbs, which essentially is who's going to pay me to do this? Who's going to pay me to do this? You know, <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> which you know took it took many forms uh, and ultimately took teaching. Teaching was the the big earner for me for a long time and has come back into my life in a very big way. Uh, so I taught uh, instrumental lessons so they're called peripatetic music teachers which is like traveling teachers i think that's what it translates something like that i'd like to say traveling okay. scholar but that, you know, that sounds a lot better I think. <laughs> hey we'll take that I, I, i'm gonna put that somewhere in a title here so yeah that's it the traveling scholar <laughs> yeah. um and yeah one thing led to another I, I i basically just kind of like started telling everybody that you know i'm a composer this is what i do and that's what i'm gonna do and Every chance I had, I'd show people what I do. You know, I'd, yeah, bring them around to my my. I say studio. It was it was my old PC with ripped software. You know, and I'd be like, yeah, check out this <laughs> this, this awesome thing I've done. It's basically the theme from Twenty Four. This is exciting. Uh, yeah, you know, uh, and uh, one day one of my friends was doing a, a launch for a big record label, and they wanted some music to walk on stage to. And I told him, that I showed him my 24-esque Sean Callery style music. And he said, dude, can you do some music that's like heartbeats and tense so that in, in this key, so that when we walk in, it kind of builds and builds and builds and builds. We pick up our guitars and start at the end of the track. Uh, and the lead singer of that band's girlfriend worked in music publishing. And she heard what I did. Uh, and she said, hey, send a demo in. So I... You know, this was the day with CDRs. So I sent over a CDR to her with 40 tracks, just like, you know, love me, hire me, give me money, you know, give me something. And she came back and was like, this one is awesome. This one track. So she said, come into this, the offices in London. And this, this was Boosie and Hawks, uh, which is a old pub music publisher. Mm -hmm. And what that was, it wasn't actually the publishing side that she worked in. She worked in advertising. So she dealt with the advertising clients and licensed music for advertising. So that's kind of where I cut my teeth in writing for ads. And I still do. I still write for ads too. You know, essentially trading music is advertising, but it's just for yeah. movie, movies rather than products. And whilst I was working with that company it, back then, and even still now, it's, it, it was work. You're basically pitching to get the job. So I'd mm -hmm. submit demos endlessly to win a job. And it was kind of like the lottery, you know. Uh, and then one day I landed my first big national TV ad over here in, in England, which was for a cheese company. And I'm a big fan of cheese. So I was super happy about that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, and it was, it was life-changing. It was like the money was great. It was uh, like 10 grand for a year's license and then another like 10 grand of royalties on top so it was it was like ah i can make this this is this is a real thing i'm not just getting paid like 50 pounds or even 500 pounds which still felt like a lot of money but that yeah was like, that was like a year that could cover me for a year this was this was huge uh and whilst i was there i met someone called vikram goody who's currently my business partner and 
we we really got along and i sent him i sent him all of my demos and just basically just kept pestering him like what do you need what do you want and i'd submit 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 and what happened was he landed a job with a trailer music company in the states so he went over to la to work for them and i was like well, i i i was i'd heard of them they were called immediate music and, and i was like oh this is this is cool what's what's all this about and it was funnily enough i just started working on trailer music at that time with another company and one thing led to another and vikram turned around to me and asked me to produce some music he he was going to launch his own trailer music label and here we are that was back in 2012 2011 2012 and it got to this lovely point which you know I'm a, I'm a big fan of the law of attraction and manifesting and well you know the spiritual side of that too uh i i, I thought to myself you know my my daughter was on the way in fact my daughter had just been born first born and i thought you know if i don't make the leap i wasn't enjoying teaching anymore if i don't make the leap when am i going to you know grab this by the horns because i was getting they were sending me work but i was too tired to do it you know mm. i I'd, i started working on bespoke trailer pitches but because it was la i'd get home from a day of teaching sort of six seven in the evening pretty tired and then they'd say we need this for our morning so i would work until two or three in the morning and often have to then get up at four or five in the morning to finish off before my day's teaching. And that was sort of happening more and more. And I was, I was thinking, okay, I need to do that. I need to do something. So I, I had it in my notice for my teaching job. And then as if from nowhere, I was offered a job scoring a Japanese film and I landed two ads all at the same time, which gave me the safety net for like, I think it was just a year, but with a year's pay it was just like the universe answered my call it, yeah it's it's it still astounds me that you know how when you just suddenly it reminds me of the uh the indiana jones movie you know only the penitent man shall pass you know <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah that's yeah, such a great story thanks man i mean i yeah i'm it's it's a bit rambling uh because i was trying to squeeze in sort of like you say 15 years into 10 minutes, five minutes. Uh, right. Uh, and that, yeah, that was, and then obviously Vikram started his trailer music company and being the person I am, I just flooded him with music. And because he had only had a handful of composers, his catalog was mostly my music at the start, which meant that I landed a lot of trailers. Mm, yeah, that's huge. So for anybody that's listening that doesn't know about this, I'll, I'll do my best. And then you kind of pick up the pieces where I fall short. Cause I've done some work in like commercial, like for commercial stuff. And what you're talking about is something that takes, you have to be the kind of person that's willing to move fast and commit fast and turn around quickly and be able to, at least in the, you know, the commercial world that you may have three days at like on average, sometimes less to like turn something fully produced around that could be used in a commercial right away. Um, is the trailer world the same? Um, or it sounds like with yours and, and Vikram's, is that right? Yep. With your business, you're now you're sort of like in the reverse position where you're cataloging a lot of stuff 
So you have things to pitch as opposed to when you're pitching to a company, they're sort of treating the composers as the catalog on the fly and saying, compose something. Now we need this in three days. Is that accurate? That's pretty much bang on the head. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, when I was in advertising, uh, I was more of a custom composer, which as you say, is where they kind of treat the composer as an available catalog and, and three, I would have loved a three day deadline. I was often given six hours. Um, wow. You know. Yeah. That's insane. Uh, and which when you landed it, it was great because it was often the advertising company would come to you saying, look, this is going on air tomorrow. We need to sign mm. this off now. And you go, Oh, Oh, okay. Uh, you know, so you'd know within the day whether you landed it, uh, which that's meant- crazy. Yeah, uh, I've moved away, thankfully, from that's that side of things. In fact, I don't even do customs with trailers because in trailers you've got the custom world and you've got, as you say, the library, the catalog side. Uh, I sit mm. very, very happily in the catalog side, which is yeah. where my back catalog is is treating me and my family very, very nicely at the moment because it's you know uh, almost ten years of albums. Uh, yeah, a lot of albums. I think I'm working on album fifty at the moment. Uh, 52. Wow. Uh, so it's a so how, how many, how many tracks are in, in each album? Oh, varies. It could be 10, could be 21. Uh, so we're looking at at least like at least 500 to 700 tracks that are like uh, readily available that, that you have cataloged. Yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so th- this is great because I want to talk about two things here. One, like obviously where you're at now and what this, because you, you mentioned it, this kind of led back into teaching. And uh, so I want to get into that and sort of what this prepared for you to come back to this, this world. But I also want to talk about this idea that of, of cataloging of the fact that what we make doesn't go bad. It's not like eggs in the fridge, you know? And I think so many of us as creative people, we, we don't feel that way. It's like it, because in our brain, the shelf life is as long as we're obsessed with it, (laughs) you know, then it's no longer like exciting to us. And so we feel like it's no longer exciting to anybody else. At what point did you start to see the benefit of, you know, having a catalog of work and how far back are your, you know, how can I word this correctly? has one of your earlier versions or earlier pieces been used recently to kind of like continue to back that up? Ah, okay. So I'll, I'll take the first part of that question. Um, I realized I came from the art world. Uh, so my degree, although it was music, it was also art. Uh, and when you study art, you always have to have a portfolio around with you. And fairly, mm-hmm. fairly extensive, you know, you, if someone likes your portfolio, then you would then go, oh, well, then you should look at my sketchbooks. And then you sort of dump a box of sketchbooks on the table and, oh, and then I've got all these slides from my photography, but, you know, so I've, I've always had that idea of cataloging being important. And from that very first opportunity I had where somebody asked me to send in a demo, I had been building my own catalog because... Firstly, I want this to get better. And secondly, I've been blessed with the knowledge that throwing anything away is a bad idea <laughs> with mm. regards to your with creativity. Uh, so I have just been building my catalog since uh, 2004, 2003. Uh, and 
because of that, I've always had this idea that it's important and it's always proven me that that was the correct thing to do. And I'm often teaching my students to never, ever delete anything. Like, yeah. do not. like Because I guarantee something you're working on today and you think, oh, this is rubbish. Go to sleep on it for a day, maybe even more. Come back to it. You'll go, oh, actually, this has got legs. You know, I can see this because you're in... Mm-hmm. A different mindset you know you've got this creative creativity coming flowing through you and then you switch into criticism when you're tired or whatever uh you're gonna have to remind me Lena, what the second part of that question was but uh, yeah and so now how how much of your back catalog has come to serve you recently like you know some of your earlier works oh it's it's always it still surprises me so Vic and I, so he, it comes through his company, Elephant Music, he, the trailer stuff. Um, Vic and I, his first albums released with Elephant Music were five albums of piano music, which so that was 50 tracks I composed in about three weeks. Um, because I was so like, I want to get this so bad, you know, yeah. and I just, I, you know, I was, I had been practicing letting go, uh, which is a very good thing to do. Um, and they, those albums still get placements. Um, I can't tell you one off the top of my head because I often don't know what's being placed. It just I just mm-hmm. get an email. Luckily, I'm in this lovely place right now where I just get an email from my accountant saying, oh, I've just paid this invoice for you. Thank you. Mm. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Okay. So I love this. So this idea of keeping a back catalog of stuff you know, not throwing anything away. I think that's so cool. And then I love this thought of, you know, you've learned that because letting go, like you talk about that idea of like, what does, what does it take for you in the moment to say, because this is, this is something we all deal with, right? I, I know a lot of the people that, that I work with, the biggest issue, one of the biggest issues they have is like, this isn't ready. And when you're being as prolific as you are to produce as much work as you are, can you walk us through like sort of an, ide- like a, a, an ideation process and then a bit of a quick work through to like what is called completion? How do you decide what completion looks like? Like A, like where do you sort of mine for consistent ideas? And then how do you decide like, okay, now this idea is done. Uh, Lennon, that that is a many faceted question that I would happily chew on for days. <laughs> um, so, okay, I would just give you guys give you guys an example. Um, I l- plan to live with regards to my professional life by the adage "done is better than perfect." Uh, because I have seen so many incredibly talented musicians fall by the wayside because they didn't think their track was finished or perfect or ready. And who decides what, what is ready, honestly. Mm. And there are, you know, it's, I studied a music college as well. Um, and one of the lessons we'd do, we'd go through songwriting and they'd play us the finished recorded article. And then they'd play us a, basically an open mic night version, just the chords and just the singer. And often the stripped back one was more powerful, more emotive. And 
and uh, you know i'm also a big fan of the composer arvo pet uh who he kind of stemmed from the American minimalism, minimalist movement in the 60s. He wasn't strictly a minimalist, but he kind of created this his own ideal, I, I, ideals on it called tintinabulation, kind of like the idea of a ringing bell and that the simplest things can be beautiful, you know, even if it's just a simple triad, you know, just played very, very simplistically, slowly. Um so all of this is kind of like constantly stewing around in my head and I like to kind of live by example. So one of the things I've done, cause I, I teach as well, uh, people how to do trolley music and add music, uh, general production music actually. Uh, and one of the things I try and teach is to let go of your ideas will not only increase your speed, it will increase your confidence to know when that idea is ready. And not just know when it's ready, but get it to that state more quickly and more easily with less friction. Um, so uh, as, as a matter of course, I release a piano track a day, uh, which is an improvisation, which I record on a little Zoom handheld recorder. And I release it uh, in, an al in album format. So once a month, I release 30 or 31 tracks. That have that are literally just me improvising on the piano, and the wonderful thing is, I play it, I send it off, it's done. Okay, <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> like awesome. Snip the start and the end, but uh, and one of the things that's um, amazed me with this is that I come back to these tracks that I've just improvised. Maybe last year, I come back to them and go, "Wow, that's beautiful!" Like you know, not not in an egotistical way, but just. I can see the idea there. And actually yeah. sometimes when there's a kink or a mistake, it just adds to the beauty of it. Um, like I said, I could chew on this for hours. Um, so if it comes to hard practice for your listeners to help improve, not just their output, but also their confidence of knowing and getting a track or even a piece of art or design, whatever it is, to that finished point is the, the art of letting go. And that's what one of the gifts that I got from working advertising. If you've given, if you've got a three hour deadline, you have to send something off. Yeah, you ain't got no choice. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You have to send something off. Uh, and yes, okay, I probably sent off a lot of like pretty ropey tracks, but. You know, I don't, there's a, uh, you've got the saying over there, you can't polish a turd, right? Oh, yeah. 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 Exactly. You can't polish a turd. But on the flip side of that, you can hear when there's dynamite in there. If, if it's yeah. not, if it's rough around the edges, it doesn't matter. Like, yeah. how many times have you seen a piece of art that's not quite finished, you know, polished or whatever it is, but it doesn't matter? There's, there's something powerful there, you know? Mm -hmm. It's like when you hear those all those wonderful demos of your favorite bands when they're before they recorded the actual album. You hear the demos and you go, "Well, these are better than the albums because there's yeah. live raw energy and it's you know and yeah, it's fantastic." Like Ben Folds Five is a great example of that actually because all of their albums are pretty much just live takes uh, and yeah, fantastic stuff. Such such great records, yeah. Oh man, love Ben Folds Five. Uh, so let's let's get back to like actionable things. So. 
one of the best ways to do this, it's a really simple way. I'm kind of do this so I cover as many creative bases as possible is to give yourself an ideation stage. I don't, you know, I want to choose a better word than that. But so for instance, if you want to come up with new ideas in the morning, just write five ideas, no matter how ridiculous they are, five ideas. So if you're a visual artist, it could be idea one, seven ducks swimming in a pool of acid. Number two, it could be uh, a giant building made of bikinis. Number three, it could be, you know, I don't know, a water bottle with uh, a businessman upside down in it. Just listing ideas, ideas, no matter how silly they are, because what you're practicing is you're not practicing getting ideas out. You're practicing not stopping yourself. Yep. And that's, that's one of the hardest things I've, I've seen with my students is endlessly criticizing their work. They'll send me a demo and they'll, they'll, they'll send me this sort of almost like an epic essay of an email attached to the demo, which I'll never read really, because when I see a big essay attached to a piece of work, I, I go, well, that's just because they're insecure about their work. Let's, let's hear the work. And the work is almost always fantastic. You know, it, it's just, we as creative people are also emotional and insecure and our imagination, which is our wonderful gift is also our downfall sometimes. Mm-hmm. So it's just, getting ideas out. And for some of you that could take the form of a sketchbook, you know, every day, just do a doodle every day, do a a sketch from what you see as me as a composer. It is a case of every day I sit in the piano and write something just play. And the act of recording it means that I have to kind of make it a certain length and I have to kind of eke the ideas out. Uh, And before I did the piano work, I would just write a track within logic that's the software i use uh and i would just i would say right i'm gonna write a minute long track and finish it as best i can in 30 minutes Mm. Uh, and i've just gotten very very quick at writing because of this hin um, holding back the critical voice yeah that's so great and 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 incredibly yeah incredibly actionable because but what you said is is just hit it on the head which is this idea that you know, the thing that holds us back the most is our insecurity. It's our fear of, you know, and and you're right. Like there's, there's a level of our heart that we like put into these things. And it's like, and, and at the risk of like, this is an unpopular opinion to some people. um, But I just, I don't think of, of art as magic anymore. I think that the magic is in, there can be magic in the creation of it. There can be moments where our emotion mixes with the creation of it, but the real magic happens when we decide to let go and let somebody else experience it. But the problem with that is that most of us don't ever let it go. And therefore you know, that moment, that magic moment for somebody is lost because they don't get that opportunity because we're sitting there in our own basement, like nitpicking the thing forever. And, you know, because we're so, we're so worried about mass, you know, I've, I've been thinking about this a lot, even for myself, and this is going to lead, I think, into your current ventures, but 
this idea of needing a bit like wanting this big audience you know we see people that it's like they're huge and we're like well that must be what success is that must be what this is you know um and so you know i i, I want to like pare this down to say that here you, you've built this really cool career around something that you love based on a practice that you are consistently involved in that you're obviously like you know, you're in love with the practice. I think that's so cool. And then now you've taken that and you've built this business in addition to that as a level up of teaching other people to do a similar thing. And, you know, here you are on YouTube. Like, I just want to like, this is not, this is not a, if anything, this should be like one of the highest compliments. I want, I want to say that out, out loud, not, not for you, Richard, because I think you'll know what I'm saying. But for the people listening, Richard has only 3,000, 3.19,000 subscribers on his YouTube channel, right? And has now done two, at least two, like six-figure launches on, on a course for your, to, to help people, right? You know, you've built a, a business alongside this. 3000 subscribers. Right. And everybody's so like worried about this idea of, well, I need more people, more people. Could you walk us through this idea of, cause I think there has to be a parallel of letting go of building and letting go. And then saying like, all right, here's the same thing. So what has this taught you about business? How, how has this like put you into a business mindset? Oh, mate, that's a good question. Uh, I would have to say, the thing it has allowed me to do is allowed me to make the mistakes and mm-hmm. not care and not care. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's just, you know, I, I went to, I basically it all started because I was achieving some success with my music. And as you know, that's not as common as it should be for people. Right. So, so people start saying, well, how have you done this? And at first I was really cagey. I was like, you know, hard work, you know, no, I'm not telling you uh, because that was fear speaking. Yeah. yeah and, good luck. And, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then I started turning around to people and saying, well, oh, actually what I'll do is I'll show you what I do like step by step. And I started, you know, get people around and I'd be like, look, this is how you do it exactly. And I'd get them, show them how to do it exactly. Uh, but the problem was they were, it was free. It was a gift. It was a free advice from me. Like, so there was no action on their part. People mm-hmm. weren't taking action. I even were, were showing people how to do it and say, look, if you want to, here's the guy that publishes my tracks, send it to him once you've done it. And none of them did it. So I, and at this time, I just my wife had bought me a Kindle for Christmas, and I was like, "Ooh, Amazon! You know, this is exciting. This is the Kindle bookstore." So I was like, "I was like, obviously scouring for cheap books because I didn't want to spend a tenner on an ebook. Come on, what are you talking about?" <laughs> <laughs> so I was, I found, I found this. I'm, I'm, I'm kicking myself. I can't remember his name. His, his this name, the author Scott. Uh, it will come to me. He's done like a ton of books. He's pretty famous in the Kindle world because he's one of the few people to to have breached an income of 500,000 plus per year just by Kindle books. His books are amazing and he covers he, he basically does that that classic like deep dive 
covering covering very little area. So he's I, I bought his email marketing book. I bought his uh, you know course book. I bought all of these books by him, and and I was like, wow, this is this is like a a new world to me. And then I I stumbled upon Pat Flynn and um, Niche Pursuits and their heart there, and I went on Smart Fast Income and went, wait, what? You can make websites that make money. <gasps> You know, this wasn't that long ago. This was to uh, 2013, and so I started building niche websites uh, that just tanked. And I've, they, uh, I must have built about I don't know six, seven of them. You know, one of them was like Cologne. I built a website about Cologne. I don't care about Cologne. <laughs> <laughs> Like the ironic thing, Lennon, is the, the one of the books. He's like, first of all, make a list of the things you're passionate about, and that you're really good at Cologne, and, right and, away. <laughs> <laughs> and the, but the thing is, we ignore the thing. We ignore those things. At the top of the list was trailer music, teaching people how to do trailer music and teaching people how to write music. But I was like, no, no, that's too easy for me. I, I mm. you know, that's that's too obvious. There must be something else. It can't be that easy. It can't be that you know the the gift I have is the thing that I then share. That's that's silly. So obviously, I went into cologne, which I, I've never worn cologne. So, <laughs> well, okay, I tell a lie. Yeah, I, I, who's I, better suited? I know exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's terrible. It just tanked. My wife was like, "Rich, what are you doing? You know, <laughs> why don't design a logo for this website? You know, this Cologne website." I was like, "That's okay. I'll, I'll do one on stationery." I did one on stationery, uh, but the thing was, it was just the excitement and the fact that I didn't really care that they were tanking. Um, and finally, it twigged to me. People were still asking me, "How do you do? How do you do this thing?" And I'd read about this website called Udemy. So okay, I emailed some of some composers I know and said, "Look, guys, will you pay me some money to make this course for you?" So like, you know, I've read a lot of these online, but books about pre-selling as like proof. Yeah, and there were six people paid me a couple of hundred quid each, and I was like, "What?" I was chasing pennies on Cologne, and I could have done this from the start. Uh, so then I put it up on Udemy and. Uh, you know, admittedly, I was getting paid pennies for that because you know, Udemy's like the course price is two nine nine, slashed down to five dollars all the time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, and then what happened there was I just uh, got this small but very very engaged community. They do my whole course. Is the course was a sixteen hour course. It was intense. Um, and at the end of it, I was like, hey. Join me on Facebook in a Facebook group because I've heard that's a good thing to do. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I got, I don't know, like a hundred people on there. And it's just it's just been such a wonderful process because as you say, it's been small, but the audience, my, I call them my, my founders because they were the people that made me believe in this whole process. Uh, I just want to put a side note here that I, I believe deeply that it's our responsibility as creatives to share our gifts and we mm. must get past the idea that advertising our gifts is egotistical or selling out. That's ridiculous. We have to share it. And in this day and age, unless you're incredible SEO, sometimes you have to pay so that people, your, your people will see it. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I dive back in. Uh, and then I had this Facebook group and they were super keen and they, they just loved everything I produced. And it was really, really nice uh, because they just kept saying to me that because I'd over-delivered so much. And then I, I produced another course for them, which was again, like 10 hours long. And I charged them, I don't know, 
$25. And they were just like, they turned like a handful of them turned around to me and said, Rich, you're grossly underselling your own stuff. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. Whenever the, the people themselves are like, no, like I should be paying more for this. Yeah, they did. So I, I turned around and said, okay, how about I launch a site and you guys pay me like 300 quid a year. And I don't know, it's probably about 25 of them signed up to this, this, this website called the trailer music school, which is still running now. And, uh, and again, it's been a really small following, but I have nurtured that group of people to the point where now I work with them as composers with my own music library, where we pitch their music. And what happened was there was whilst I was setting up the trailer music school, sorry, it's a really long story, Lennon. It's, uh, just, oh, this is great. Uh, whilst I was setting up the trailer music school, Vic, who was my publisher with Elephant Music, he he sold all my music to, the, to his trailer clients. He was like, you know, we should we should do this together. You know, I think this would be a good idea. So we then set up a competition. I turned around to my community and said, guys, we're going to run a competition. You submit a track, and the winners get published and sent off to all the trailer clients in LA. And obviously, these guys were mostly novices and if they weren't novices they understood that that was quite a big deal because Vic's company is very well respected in the trading music industry and you know it was a long long process but it worked and a couple of them had landed big trailers from that album and Vic and I sort of said turned to each other and said so the process works where we teach them how to do it and then the good tracks get sold and then the composers earn money and we we obviously earn a cut as well because you know we were publishing it so that's when we launched this our new company called protege protege school or protege.school for the website uh which is the big cheese it's a a full year's cohort where we teach 30 courses so 30 specific genres to a very small amount of students so it's we sold out this year. It was 50 students only for the year. And like I said, we a big six figure launch. It's, uh, it's amazing. We've got now got a team of six people and we did our first, first year last year. And one of our students whilst doing the course landed a trailer with Netflix. Uh, and then we got another, uh, Jimmy, Jimmy John's there's the Jimmy John's mm-hmm. sandwich shop. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Got an advert, advert with them and, you know, this was our first year and that was another six figure launch. So it's been tremendous. And as you say, like, okay, Vic has respect in the trailer music world as a publisher. Uh, and I don't have a big audience, you know, as you say, I've got 3000 subscribers on YouTube. And when we launched Project, I think I only had 2000, uh, but my viewers, my handful of perhaps 300 fans you know as pat flew would call them super fans yeah they uh really appreciate what i'm doing uh you know and obviously i have a podcast as well for the trailer music school which is as i said to you lennon it's like that's the thing that enabled them to know me yeah uh because uh, most of the podcasts are me just walking around it, talking into my phone, just kind of trying to make jokes to make myself laugh and feel a little less awkward. So it's lots of self, 
lots of solo banter, you know, uh, and innuendo and puns, which are kind of my ideal sense of humor. Uh, and because of that, everyone kind of, everyone knows Rich, you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it's been, it's been wonderful. And like, as I say, this, this year with Protégé launching with a very, very small audience, that's fantastic. We did, t- we, we did target cold traffic uh, um, as well because well, we did a, a big ad facebook ad push uh but we you know we didn't spend much at all yeah did those did those what what was the conversion on those just oh it was pretty high uh wow uh the, the conversion so it was it was almost all came through email so they'd get onto the funnel which was you know they'd buy a little book and then some samples and or a course and then we'd say hey we're launching this school this year limited number of places and you have to interview to get on mm-hmm. book an interview. So they had to book an interview and I think it was as high as sort of one in three from the wow. interviews once they were approved by us were signed up to the course, which That's amazing. is, yeah, it was amazing. It was, it was, it was a lot of time, a lot of effort to do, have to do all those interviews, but uh, there was a team of four of us doing interviews. So I do want to like, I want to follow this up because, you know, when we get in, there's two, there's two battles that I think a lot of creative people deal with one, like, like you said, this, this first thing is like, okay, I've got to, it feels weird for me to sell. I'm no expert. It feels weird for me to sell my knowledge, you know, and two, the pushback then, and, you know, is kind of, this idea that, okay, if you have 50 people and you're making a six figure launch, like that's a high ticket item. So isn't that like wrong? <laughs> you know, like how can you promise something like that? You know, how can you make that promise to somebody for a high ticket thing? These are the things that I know like people listening are questioning. Cause they're just like, I can't do that. At best I can maybe sell something for 50 bucks, you know, like, yep. How do you how do how do people get past those those mental barriers? Uh, yeah, that takes a lot of work because we are pre-programmed by our society and our parents and our families and our friends. You know, and we first of all we have to cross the hurdle of it's okay to earn money as a creative person because I mean, stop the starving artist. I mean, you know the deal. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, the, it's the, they're not mutually exclusive. Uh, so anyway, um. Oh, I forgot what I was saying now. Uh, sorry, Lennon, what was the question? That's okay. Yeah, just how do they get past these creative hurdles of, yeah, like big ticket items and such? Yeah, okay. So the one thing is like, I can say that I've sold courses for $5 and I've sold courses for $8,000. Uh, and the thing I can guarantee is the person that spent $5 will put a lot less effort and see a lot less value in that course. That's just, this is just courses mind. Uh, and also obviously the, the $5 course was 16 hours of video. The, the 8,000 one is a year long training from two, you know, more three recognized industry professionals. Um, and also the thing is, I had a lot of people who did, who have done my courses, who have gone through university educations They've come out of, you know, this is proper music education. They've come out of music education and saying, I just did your course, your 16 hour video and learned more in that 16 hours than I did in three years at university. 
Um, so there's, I mean, there's so many angles you can take with this, but people place value on money, obviously, and what they spend their money on. If someone spends money on your product, it's, it shows you that they value it. This, you know, some people have a different idea of money. Some people see it in the more natural way that it is, that it's just a tool, so there isn't an emotional attachment to it. Other people still have very much an emotional attachment to money, you know, and especially if, if it's seen as a lavish embellishment upon themselves, you know, like someone buying a painting, for instance, well, oh, I can't, can't buy that, you know, why would I spend money on a painting? And In fact, NFTs are a perfect example of this, you know, why would I spend money on this single digital product? But it's not that. People are buying more than that. They're buying mm-hmm. the deeper meaning and the deeper value. Um, and the other thing is, uh, it's because you have you also need to practice a little bit of self-love. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I can guarantee those of you who are listening are all creative. And I can guarantee you're all incredibly talented. And I can guarantee there is a place for you in the world. And that in that place, people will love what you do. One of my favorite graphic novelists, um, Jeffrey Brown, uh, you know, he's not like a traditional graphic novelist. It's not sort of beautiful figures sculpted it's it's essentially doodles but the stories are amazing Mm -hmm. and i you could see how one would be overly critical of the style but the as i've grown older i've grown to realize that the same with music sometimes someone recording a beautiful cello, cello line on their iphone is better than having a full orchestra being recorded with incredibly expensive microphones. Mm-hmm. Uh, this, yeah, it's such a deep thing here, and it, you know, we a lot of us are walking around with poverty consciousness as well. You know, where we we believe deeply that we don't deserve money, and that kind of roots in our own belief that we are not good enough. Yeah, which is a, a whole another show. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think of it a lot in, in the, in terms of the, cause this is, you know, money is an issue has been an issue for me in my life too. And, and overcoming and, and you're right. It's a total programming thing because I had to take a deep look at like, what was my, what was the relationship not only to money within my family, but what was also the relationship to the people that had money with my family? How did, how were they perceived as individuals by my family? And that played a lot into, oh, really what I'm worried is about is like, how will others perceive me for making more money? And what, what some of my best mentors have taught me is that just like you said, money is an exchange of value. Money is, is in circulation always. Right. And, and also to remind ourselves that like, it's a gift that when we give money to someone else, we're, we're entrusting them with something. And we're also entrusting ourselves, like you said. And so um, I think it's really important that we, that we take a look backwards and ask ourselves, like, what, what is the real story that's coming up here for us? Whether it's investing in ourselves, you know, because um, I've invested more this year 
than I ever have. I've probably invested somewhere close to 30 grand on myself, which is insane to think about when I don't make that much money. <laughs> like when you think of like the investment versus, but what's changed with that is that exactly what you talk about, I'm sure with your students is that the higher investment creates higher action, creates higher confidence, which creates higher clarity. And then my momentum has picked up a thousand fold and just the way I act and carry myself, you know? So it's an energy transfer as much as it is anything else. And I think that's so important to remember. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the other thing is, uh, if money is a big issue for you, the one thing you can balance it out with is by following the footsteps of say Pat Flynn or Tim Ferriss. Uh, or as countless people, actually, um, you say, okay, well, perhaps, say, for instance, perhaps I've got a course that I can charge $1,000 for, but everything else I give away for free mm -hmm. or for like a dollar. So you go, well, actually, it's okay. It's just not for you. You know, the other, th the other thing that, that took me a while to realize, but I now see so much more clearly is that not everybody's in the same money situation as you. Yeah. Your idea of what an expensive course is not the same as someone else's. Yeah. And, and that does ver that varies from country to country. We realized this with Protégé when we were advertising globally, we noticed certain countries, the fees for the course weren't a big deal. Whereas some countries it was like, Oh, oof, you know, can't afford that. Yeah. Uh, so there's so many other things in play. So, you know, going back to this, I, I deeply believe that we are here to share our gifts. But if we don't have money coming in, it makes it very hard to do that. Yeah. So you need, you need to have the money coming in. It's kind of like, you know, if your favorite band in the 90s sort of put out a, a press release in Kerrang! magazine saying, uh, if no one buys this record, we're never going to produce any music ever again because we don't have any money. Everyone would go, okay, we're going to buy this record. <laughs> yeah. right? We don't want you to stop doing what you're doing. And it's the, and that's why Patreon's been so massive because it's your yeah. chance to say, I value what you're doing. Yeah. I don't have to pay, but I value it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and to, to that point, a lot of what I say is that if, you, if you're willing to say, hey, just give me money on Patreon and I'm not going to do anything different, then you should have no problems saying, I'm willing to give you a hundred times the effort for a hundred times the amount and feel like fully on board with that because there's no, there really is no difference, right? It, yeah. The men mentality is the same. So I want to, I want to touch on some things here that I think are really great takeaways for you guys. This has been so great. The first thing is keep a back catalog and don't, <laughs> don't, don't let your growth determine the fact that like someone else can still find, find this valuable somewhere down the line, this can still be worth something. Keep that back catalog. I love this. Done is better than perfect, right? Um, the simplest things can be beautiful. And I think that applies in so many levels where, you know, when you're creating something, it doesn't need to be elaborate. It, 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 it can be you 
talking into a camera for six minutes, or it can be something that you spend 20 hours on. Like either of those things can be perceived equally as beautiful uh, by the receiver. And I think it's important that we remind ourselves of that. Sometimes we get in a place where we forget that it's really, once we create it and let it go, it's no longer ours. It's the receivers. And we get to like, let them have that. Um, letting go increases speed and confidence. I love that. So keep at it, right? Create intention and ideation stages, uh, ideation stages. So like five ideas a day, what can you do in your craft where you can just sit down and create five ideas? It doesn't even need to be five finished things, just five ideas, learn to fail. And while you're doing that, look for what's easy Look for what's easy. This is such a big one for me. I was like, thank you for saying that because I, I was late to the game on this. Uh, and, you know, my coach calls it the, the zone of genius. You know, what's your zone of genius? And you're right. We, we are, again, this is pre-programming where it's like we're taught that if you're not working really hard, then it's not worth anything. And let me tell you, like the things that are easy are usually things that you've already worked really hard at, even if it's subconsciously. And so now reap the benefits of the work that you've already done versus feeling like you have to keep, you know, because there's going to be hard stuff anyway. Um, in, in regards to money, the price equals the value. So what they spend on something is what they will act upon with it. So However much they spend is how is the value that they see. They get to determine that value, not you. And that's a, that should be freedom. Um, and this is also a practice of self-love because you are learning to trust yourself. And if it's that big of an issue, the thing I always come back to is with anybody I work with, I say, hey, you got, you know, if, it, if within this amount of time, you feel like this isn't working, I'm going to give you your money back. I got no question with that. Like if that's what you need to do, then do that, you know, just get, I think there's, there's, there's great ethical versions of, of what we do. And you can argue that um, any company in the world would be unethical by taking somebody's money if you have that viewpoint. But I think what we come back to is just how do you handle the people that feel like it didn't work or feel like it's, you know, have ethics, but also have boundaries. Um, I think it's really important. This is great, Richard. Um, anything else you'd like to add to that? Anything you felt like I swept under the rug? Dude, you made me sound so much wiser. <laughs> <laughs> no, you do. Uh, I just get uh, <laughs> Yeah, thank you. That was awesome. Uh, I liked that summary a lot. Uh, I, I would just like to add one more thing, really. Um, and this kind of came out of you summarizing the things I'd said, and that is practice the art of giving and receiving mm. and, uh, and I'm, i don't there's no sexual innuendo there that is just practice <laughs> the art of giving and receiving because actually that you see what you're doing as you giving something to the world and also practice the art of giving money to charities give money to charities to people who need that money it doesn't have to be a lot just a little bit of money just give yeah. that and then when something comes your way take it graciously yeah that, that is another obstacle for us creative, creatives because we don't just say no to money. We say no to help. We say no, say no to opportunities because yeah. we're not practiced in the art of giving and receiving. So good. Yeah. So good. I think about that even when somebody's like, let me pay for dinner. 
And Thank I used you. to be like, I, yeah, I used to be like, no, 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 no. And now I, I've learned to say thank you because what are we doing when we say no? We're yeah. denying them that blessing. They want to give us something. Exactly, exactly. You know, when when I have offered to pay for something and they've said, that's really kind, thank you, I go, oh, oh, yay. Whereas when they've been like, no, 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 don't you dare do that. That's how I get all, a bit all affronted and oh, yeah, uh, this is weird now. <laughs> you know. Yeah. yeah. Totally, I agree. That's great. Richard, thank you so much. Let people know where they can find you. And um, yeah. Uh, well, best place would be uh, richardschreiber.com. Uh, and you know, you pretty much find everything on there because I, I try to document all my side projects, whether it's the trailer music school or whether it's protege.school or my synthwave moniker or, you know, whatever it is. So my own online comic, you know, it's all these lovely little projects I do just because I enjoy them. So great. Yeah, description has all the links for all those things, uh, including uh, the protege school. All the all the all those things. Instagram, YouTube. Go get your learn on uh, for you musicians out there. Take a look at this stuff. This is really fascinating, and um, maybe we can have you back and chat more about just the musical. We'll geek out on music gear and things like that at some point. That'd be fun. Love to, man. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Oh, my pleasure. What a fun conversation. I just love that dude. And just by happenstance that he hit me up and, and asked me to be on his podcast. And I was like, oh my gosh, I've, I've got to like talk to this guy. I really just love what he's doing. And so Richard, thank you so much for being on the show and uh, being such a, a great guy and such a great resource for people that are getting into composition and wanting to make a living uh, doing that. And just a great resource for creatives uh, on the whole. So thank you so much for for being that guy. Um, Guys, I hope that you have a great new year. And I just want to say what a a year it's been. Um, Those of you that are listening right now, I cannot tell you enough what it means to me that you're here, that you're giving me... um, what is your most valuable asset, which is your time. And uh, I don't take that lightly. And I just want you to, to hear me when I say that I have all the gratitude toward you. And I can't wait to, um, to dig into 2022 with you guys and talk more about, you know, things that are coming up, things that are really exciting here at Stop the Starving Artist and uh, things that I think are going to be really exciting for you uh, because of these expansions and ideas as well. So um, happy new year to you and all the blessings to you and your family. Mm